Good morning, everybody. It's great to be together. We're glad you're here. I um, want to just make you aware of a couple more opportunities that you and I have to worship our King this Christmas season. Um, just make you aware, if you haven't heard or don't know, our Christmas Eve service will be at 4 o'clock. Um, and so we hope you can make it bring a friend and as we celebrate uh, Christmas. And also a great opportunity this next Wednesday night. The reason these risers are here is Wednesday night they're going to be filled with children who are going to bring the message of Christmas. And so uh, what a great chance for us to get together, uh, young and old, and continue to celebrate the message. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be this Wednesday, the 19th at 7 p.m. And so I'm sure the teachers uh, have announced when the children are supposed to be here. Um, they do a great job of communicating. And so um, please note those details um, that, again, are opportunities for us to continue to worship more than just on Sunday morning. You um, and I are unique. Um, of all the 7 billion or whatever people there are, uh, you have something that no one else has. That's an address. With all the boxes being shipped and all the letters being shipped, there's an address you have that are de very specific details which get a letter or a package specifically to you. Your name and your number on the house or P.O. box, whatever it would be. Your address is very specific. It has details that point to you, to your identity. You know, the Bible has details of an address of the Messiah. All those details point to one person in his identity. Matter of fact, there's some 333 prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. It's his address. We would be wise to learn his address. We learn it in all the prophecies. As we consider who is this king of glory that we worship, we look at the prophecies and it brings great encouragement. In Luke chapter 24, we read about an amazing encounter Jesus has. After he's resurrected, he joins a couple of fellows who are on a road talking about all the things that had happened with Jesus being crucified. And, and they're actually in great despair because they, they banked it all on Jesus and they're like, we thought he was the one. We thought he was the promised one, the Messiah. And as they're taking a walk, Jesus joins them. That's a great walk to have. He says to them in verse 17, what are, the, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still. Notice it says, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? He said to them, What things? They said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and their rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified. These words are packed with emotion, verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. The problem with these two is they're uninformed about the truth of the events they experienced. Their lack of faith either caused them to forget or misunderstand the prophetic word about the Messiah. Jesus enlightens them in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the 
what the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? I mean, you don't get a better situation than this. Totally confused, discouraged guys. And the one who is the subject of prophecy is the one explaining it to them. That's pretty cool. I mean, there's no greater teacher than that. Jesus Christ, the subject of prophecy, the, ad, the details of all the address that pointed to him, he's the one who explains to them he's the subject of prophecy. The wise men also are a good example. They saw Jesus' star from a distance, they closed in on it, and they found Jesus. In order for us, in order for the prophetic word of God to become real to us, maybe we need to make a trip too. Prophecies like boarding a spaceship. Uh, we, we see things clearly the farther we get away from it all. We see things clearly the farther at a distance. The two disciples from Emmaus had the greatest teacher, the greatest teaching from the greatest book ever, but they were slow to believe. Jesus took them a little higher up to see a little bigger picture to help them understand. You and I must be willing to obviously give God our heart, but to give him our head, too, so we can understand his heart. I think that's what Jesus was doing, and I know that's what God's word does to us. Now, we don't know exactly everything he said to these two. We do know that everything he taught them was about him, because he's a subject of prophecy. Now, we also kind of get this idea what the content of prophecy is in Jesus' conversation here. Verse 46 through 47 he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the, for the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so what's this content to prophecy? What does the Old Testament prophesy to? Well, Christ's birth, his suffering and death, and his resurrection. It proclaims speaks to the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this. There's two streams of Messianic prophecy. There's two streams of prophecies about the Messiah. The first stream is this prophecy of his kingly Messiah, the kingship of Jesus. The second stream is of the suffering Messiah. You have both streams working through the Old Testament. And Jesus' summary of these prophecies included these facts. Again, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. Let's look at the prophecies of Christ's birth. You have two charts of Scripture. What I hope we did is left enough room in the middle for you to do the specific prophecy, what it was about Jesus. First prophecy we see in Genesis 3.15. The prophecy given at the very beginning is when God told Satan the seed would come which would crush his head. Now, I, it's very interesting to note, and I think very instructive, that God gave this first prophecy to Satan. It wasn't given to man. And I think that's important because it helps you and I understand God's plan is as much about his rule as man's need. And so this first prophecy is given. This seed will crush Satan's head. We know it's fulfilled because Galatians 4 tells us, verse 4 tells us, the, the fulfillment of time came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And so the prophecy is that this Messiah would be the offspring of a woman. Prophesied in Genesis 3, fulfilled, we see the fulfillment in Galatians 4. 
But there's more as we look at this address, which brings us to the Messiah. Genesis 18, 18. The prophecy is that the Messiah would be the promised offspring of Abraham. We see it fulfilled, actually, three different places, tell us. Acts 3.25, Matthew 1.1, and Luke 3.34. Genesis 17.19, we were told the Messiah would be the promised offspring of Isaac. We see the fulfillment in Luke 3.34. Numbers 24.17, we're told the Messiah would be the promised offspring of Jacob. We find it fulfilled in Luke 3.34. This address is getting more specific the more we go on. Genesis 49.10, we're told that this Messiah would be uh, descended from the tribe of Judah. Lo and behold, Luke 3.33 tells us he was. Isaiah 9.7 tells us it's, this Messiah would be the heir to the throne of David. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 and verse 6 speak of the fulfillment. Micah 5.2, now it's really starting to narrow this thing down. And he says this Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem, the prophecy is the, the, the birthplace of Jesus. We're told in Matthew 2, 1 and Luke 2, this is fulfilled. This is where Jesus was born. Isaiah 7, 14 says this would not be any normal birth. That Messiah would be born of a virgin. Matthew 1, 18 speaks of the fulfillment. Jeremiah 31, 15 speaks of the slaughter of infants which came as a result of Herod seeking out to destroy the Christ child, Matthew 2.16. We see the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's amazing. I mean, all those details and some very specific ones fulfilled. It's like that address. All them specific details of the address, they point and lead us somewhere into Jesus Christ. Now let's fast forward to the opening chapter of the New Testament, Matthew. Now I'm going to be bouncing in Scripture. It's an exciting trip as we go through this. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We also have these genealogies in Luke 3, verse 23 through 38. The claim of Jesus is that he was the Messiah and king. He was a ruler from the line of David, both legally and biologically. In other words, the gospel's genealogies are great testimonies to the fact Jesus is the unique focus and culmination of prophecy. It's a beautiful picture. In both lists in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 of the genealogies, which, by the way, if we, when we get to them, we kind of fly by because, I don't know, A, we can't pronounce the names. B, we don't quite get why they're even important. But boy, these, these babies are really important. Um, they, they are incredibly important as you and I worship at Christmas, and I hope that uh, some of that comes across here. They're significant, by the way, for the Jews who would come along after Jesus, because in A.D. 70, all Israel's genealogical records were lost when the Romans ransacked Jerusalem. But God's plan would not be thwarted because we have the Scriptures. We are grateful for Matthew 1 and Luke 3 because they highlight of God's plan. Now at this point, I need to point out, there appears to be a problem as we look through the genealogies. Let's look, Matthew 1. We have this book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now everything's going well as we read through this. And then we get to verse 11 and we run into a problem. 
The problem is found in the name of Jeconiah. Now, why is he a problem? Well, let's look at a couple things. First of all, someone who claimed to be Messiah needed to trace his lineage back to David. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 11. Helps us, we see this prophecy vividly. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And then you go to Acts chapter 13, verse 23, 22 and 23, I should read them both. Acts chapter 13, verse 22 through 23. And after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior. And so we see it prophesied, a root of Jesse in Isaiah 11. Acts 13 tells us, That from David, from the root of Jesse, Jesus came, the Messiah. But where's the problem then? Well, as you and I look at this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, again, we come to this guy, Jeconiah, also called Caniah, and we find the problem in Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. Very, very instructive to us. I'm going to be reading... Verses 28 to 30. Now verse 18 begins, Therefore thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Okay? And so God's speaking. And he's going to this, and then he gets to verse 20, is 28. Is this man, Coniah, despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants have been hurled out and cast into a land they had not known? O land, land, hear the word of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down, childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Well, that's a problem on several fronts. Coniah experienced a curse. And the curse was that no child, no physical descendant of Jeremiah would ever succeed sitting on the throne of David, the royal line. The problem is Joseph was a physical descendant of Jeconiah. He had Jeconiah's blood in his loins, so according to this curse, the Messiah could not come as a physical descendant of Joseph because of this curse. So it looks like we got a problem. Well, to us maybe, not to God. He would have been prevented this Messiah from sitting on the throne of David by this curse. Potentially, anyways, as you and I look through it. Now, probably the best way to consider this and sum it up, I read a a commentator who said, no descendant of Jeconiah would have the right to the throne of David. Until Jeremiah, the first requirement for Messianic lineage was to be of the house of David. But with Jeconiah, it was limited still further. Now, one had to not only be of the house of David, 
but he had to be in the house of David apart from Jeconiah because of this curse. And so as we read through Matthew 1, it might, we might seem like we're just flying through it, but there's a big hiccup seemingly in there. So Jesus had a legal tie through the throne, the royal line, but he also needed a biological tie. And that's where we read in Luke 3, because the, the legal tie, Jesus is the Messiah, the Mesonaic line, goes through Solomon, the royal line, but the biological, physical line comes through, and Luke testifies to this, not through Solomon, but through Nathan, the other son of David. And the way this comes together beautifully, because it speaks of who Jesus is when he came to this earth, the royal line was cursed. Again, through this curse on Jeconiah, no physical descendant through Jeconiah could sit on a throne. We know that. Through Solomon, this royal line came. And although it was cursed, God's plan was not thwarted in any way. Because Jesus came from through Joseph, but not physically. God was the Father. So the royal line was preserved. The, Mes- the Messiah came through Nathan, the physical line, which came through Mary. Which if you read Matthew in the genealogy, you, st- you start to see a real common theme where it says, such and such, the father of. Such and such, the father of. And it gets all the way to Jesus and it stops and doesn't say that anymore. It says this child basically came from Mary. I mean, it doesn't use the physical line of Joseph anymore. Because it couldn't. Because he was not biologically or physical descendant of Joseph. Now, where this comes even more exciting is the result of Jesus coming the way he did. He was a physical descendant of David by Mary, by this creative act of the Holy Spirit, and thus making him the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam. In other words, true humanity. But coming through the royal line, via the virgin birth, the result was he was a legal heir to the throne of David through Joseph by adoption, not by the physical father, making him the son of God, not make him, he came as the son of God, Jesus' undiminished deity. So through both threads, he is undiminished deity and true humanity in the genealogies proclaim this. That's why I said it's, it's tricky when we read them because we don't see it. But as we follow this thread, even with this curse, we see Jesus' undiminished deity True humanity. And this plan is carried out beautifully in Christ, the prophecies of his birth. So what? (laughs) Well, since Solomon was a king and Jesus is Solomon's legal descendant through Joseph, Jesus has legitimate legal claim to the title of Messiah. But Jesus' biological tie to David was established again through Nathan by Mary since Nathan had a different line of descent than Solomon. The point is, no matter how you trace this thing, all the details of the address point and find their culmination in Jesus Christ. Anyone wanting to verify could follow this address, and it would point to Jesus. That's why you have a lot of different people, Josh McDowell and others, who were so significantly impacted and came to Christ because they studied this. And they found all these prophecies led to Christ and were fulfilled in that one person and how the scriptures pointed to it in so many different specific ways. Again, these genealogies are packed 
We haven't even scratched the surface with ways of how they point to Jesus. So we have all these prophecies, even this curse, and how God bypassed that curse about Christ's birth. But then we also have prophecies of Christ's death. Because the Old Testament also deals with Christ's death. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. We have really specific prophecies to the point of words even Jesus spoke on the cross in Psalm 22. And what's really exciting is we read Peter's words in 1 Peter 2.21, and he gives us this sense of fulfillment. 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Basically, he's quoting Isaiah 53 right there. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Again, at the end of verse 24, there's an allusion back to Isaiah 53 in his words. Christ's death. Acts 3, 18 speaks again to this. Christ prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come die for the sins of mankind. Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, I'll look at verse 18. It's worth reading the whole sermon for sure. He says in verse 18, but the things which God announced beforehand, how did God announce these things? Well, by the mouth of all the prophets, what did they announce? That his Christ should suffer. Jesus is thus fulfilled. And so we have very specific prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ's death. So we have about Christ's birth, and we have about his death that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just Christ's birth that was prophesied. It wasn't just Christ's death that was prophesied. It was also Christ's resurrection. This is the part I think sometimes we forget was prophesied. Now remember, Jesus predicted his own resurrection on several occasions, to his own disciples in Matthew 17 and in uh, chapter 20 as well, and to the unbelieving Jews in John 2, he prophesied his resurrection. The book of John said, actually, after Jesus was raised, his disciples remembered these things. They're like, oh, yeah, that's right, he talked about that, and they believed. And so prophecy always is meant, obviously, to lead us to deep belief and faith in who Jesus Christ is. Now, if we go to Acts chapter 2, we see this prophecy about Christ's resurrection. So much so, it's preached. Now, let's bounce in a couple verses here. Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 28. For David says of him, the Messiah, I will always be holding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Peter's um, quoting Psalm 16 there very clearly. And as we move on, verse 29 to 32, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, which we talked about, he looked ahead 
and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. I mean, what a beautiful picture of how the Old Testament prophecies prophesied about Jesus rising from the dead. And disciples remember what Jesus said about this, and they believed, and we also are to look at them prophecies, part of the address, and come to the same conclusion as an honest seeker would, and believe. This is the uniqueness of Christ in prophecy. He's unequaled. He's unparalleled. And when you and I see the many ways the prophetic word about Christ was fulfilled in his first coming, you can have great confidence in the prophecies about his second coming. I mean, he fulfilled, I mean, if you look at the precision of the details we talked about, the very precision of words chosen, location of his birth, born of a virgin, all the prophecies that laid out, Matthew, Matthew 1 lineage, Luke 3, and all the precision of Scripture. And we can have great confidence when Scripture precisely refers to Jesus coming again. We set our hope in that. And it really brings three great applications. One is prophecy fulfilled brings great confidence in the future. You and I, again, can have great confidence in what awaits us. When the scriptures speak of what heaven's like or speaks of the great, uh, great white throne judgment and how, what a, a horrific time that will be for some. Also, the rewards the Bible promises, the marriage supper of the Lamb, all these wonderful things, you and I can have great confidence in the future because of the fulfillment of prophecy. Also, we can have great confidence when prophecy, because prophecy is fulfilled, we have great confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Matter of fact, if you read Hebrews 2, it just got me really excited. I was reading Hebrews 2. There's no less than nine Psalms quoted in Hebrews 2, or Hebrews 1. And then chapter 2 begins basically saying, don't forget what you just read, because if you do, you'll drift away. Well, think about that for a moment. Prophecy is so significant, it keeps us grounded in the reliability of Scripture. And if we're not in the Scriptures, and not studying these prophecies which find their culmination in Jesus author of Hebrews says, you run a risk of drifting. So don't forget what you read in Hebrews 1, all the prophecies fulfilled in Christ. If you do, you run a risk. Prophecy fulfilled brings great reliability of the Bible. And then number three, prophecy fulfilled brings great confidence that Christ is to be worshipped and he's the coming king. Great confidence as you and I look at all these details, the address that all point to Jesus as the coming king, which we've sung about. Noel, born as the king of Israel. You and I have great confidence as we approach this Christmas season that the one we sing about, Jesus Christ, we have great confidence that he's coming again, that he's worthy to be worshiped. Because all the address of Scripture, all the details, found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, to redeem us. 
That's the beautiful message of Christmas. Why the prophecies? They bring confidence in the future. They bring confidence in the Bible. They bring confidence in a coming king. Your faith is a sure faith. It's a secure faith. It's a faith that's reliable and can be held up to scrutiny. By reading the prophecies, we behold a magnificent God who works out his purposes down to the smallest detail. And we know that this is a God who can be trusted. And this is a Messiah who fulfills every hope in every heart. And so keep looking at the details. Keep a close gaze as you read about Christ and consider him this Christmas season. For what, you, what we see, what's revealed, is nothing less than God's love and the gift of a baby, the promised Messiah who would forever change the world. Let's pray. Lord, I, I admit, these, and as I speak these words, I feel sometimes the, the details are so overwhelming that um, it's hard to even articulate them well. I thank you for your word. It's truth. Our hope is based on truth. And Lord, you wanted it to be abundantly clear to mankind. You are in complete control. And as we look at these prophecies, we acknowledge that you are the true king and you reign forever. You have always reigned. We thank you that you are the Messiah who came, born of a woman, to crush Satan's head and fulfill prophecies made hundreds of years before. Well over 300 prophecies fulfilled in you, Jesus. Our hope is indeed secure. Thank you that you have not left us without evidence. Far from it. And like the wise men this morning, we, may, we take the trip. It leads to you. The one worthy of worship. The one who is the king, the promised Messiah, the coming king. And so we continue with our hearts, with our minds, and with our voices to worship you. Born this day, born that day, the king, the king of Israel. And so we come worship you, Christ, Christ the king. In your name, Jesus, I pray, amen.